0: Welcome to another episode of Monday Monday Afternoon afternoon. Theologians.
1: Theologians.
0: We interrupt this serious discussion to bring you a not-so-serious and much shorter discussion about smoothies. I don't know why they call these smoothies because it's kind of rough. It's got strawberry stuff in there and bananas, and the bananas pretty smooth, but the strawberries kind of rough. So
1: yeah, well, it's got all those seeds that you can't pick off. And
0: Yeah. Why don't they yeah. call them roughies?
1: And then you could have fill it with roughage. Mm-hmm. Put in some kale. <laughs> As yes. Jim Gaffigan says, it's the active ingredient in bug spray.
0: <laughs> I wonder if I could start mashing that up and rubbing it on my neck to see if it keeps mosquitoes away
1: could try it
0: that might be active ingredient in mosquito gagging
1: (laughs) gag a mosquito (laughs) they fly in there
0: (coughs) they try to pierce it and suck whatever is in there out they're getting all these ingredients that are really healthy for them and they go (coughs) i feel stronger now super
1: mosquito and the scientists say, obviously, that which is healthy, or what we thought was healthy, actually kills mosquitoes. <laughs>
0: Whoa! We now leave this silly discussion about smoothies.
1: Recording
0: in progress. Hey, welcome Rick to another. <laughs> See how quick I was on that one? I was a little bit too long last time. Thank you last week for doing a great job of introducing not only the topic, but also telling about the benefits for our listeners, our fellow theologians, and what they could win from listening to that podcast. And today, I'm going to ask you again, what is the topic for our discussion today?
1: And today's topic is, what happened to Jesus between his death and the resurrection? But more than that, We want to know why is this important? Why does this matter? Ah,
0: ah, Yes, it's very important indeed. And it does matter because as we've mentioned before, if you start with the wrong premise, you come to the wrong conclusion. And sometimes those conclusions can actually become dangerous. And one of the dangerous conclusions people can arrive at if they use the wrong uh, approach to trying to ferret out what the real purpose of this question is and what the most important thing is that we can take away from Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, people can actually try to justify universalism because of these conclusions.
1: Yeah, we've already seen the universalism doesn't really fly in the face of the scriptures, so we don't want to come to that conclusion.
0: No, we do not. We don't want to get to that conclusion, and it's easy for me to see how we cannot get to that conclusion if we approach this correctly with our super sleuthing tools. So, let me throw it to you to answer this question, because it's an important one, and it helps get us into this discussion. Why Was there a delay in the first place? Why was it necessary for there to be a delay before he was resurrected?
1: It's conceivable that if there was an attending physician that he could have just said, oh, Jesus is dead, poof, alive again. It could have happened, but it didn't. You know, when God Mm -hmm. doesn't do something, he has a purpose for not doing it. Mm -hmm. So let's take a look at some of those reasons why God would not just poof Jesus alive again. We look at the Jewish culture in those days. If somebody had been dead for three days, that was pretty solid evidence that they weren't coming back. So it wasn't <laughs> <think> just—it so. <laughs> it just wasn't a swoon. Somebody, you know, fainted and their their heartbeat lowered, and there was you know so little blood pressure they couldn't find a a a pulse and you you
0: imagine i mean three days is pretty well over the top just one more
1: day and then we'll then we'll call it yeah we know that jesus didn't swoon the jewish tradition their culture says that a person's soul or their spirit could remain in the body for three days but after three days the spirit departed (laughs) Mm -hmm. clearly through these post-resurrection appearances jesus proved without a shadow of a doubt that he was fully dead and that he was now fully alive.
0: That's good to know. See, I wasn't really aware before we started diving into the details that that was a very specific thing in the Jewish mindset that three days was it. Otherwise your spirit or soul could still be hanging around a little bit. So that's good. Jesus knew that he knew the culture may not be our culture. We'd probably call it within 15 minutes. You know, there's no pulse. There's no brain activity. He's gone with him. It was important. So thanks for giving us that detail.
1: And then we also saw a foreshadowing of this prior to jesus's death he had raised lazarus from the dead oh, yeah. but he purposely waited beyond that three-day time limit so mm-hmm. that everybody would know that lazarus was truly mm-hmm. dead mm-hmm. and he was considered so and then he went and resurrected him you know even in the passage the disciples were going why are we waiting we can just yeah. go now and he yeah. says no there's a reason for this mm. and that was proof that he had power over death itself in the case of lazarus and then also in his case That's you know, it was good a foreshadowing know. of his own death burial and resurrection and we see that in john 11. And right. Of course, in John 11 is the shortest verse in the Bible, which is Jesus wept. And why was he mm. weeping? Because Lazarus was dead. He was his friend. He was mourning mm. the death, even though he knew that he was going to raise him.
0: And there's some hope for me to know that if God doesn't answer my prayer right away, if he seems to be waiting for some reason, this is one of those good passages that reminds me. He always waits on purpose.
1: And answers on time. Yeah. Good. Another point in here is that the three-day time period fulfilled Jesus' own prophecy about his death. Uh-huh. He said, on the third day, I will be raised. Mm-hmm. And then Paul, you know, kind of a, a pretty significant Bible scholar, since he wrote it, said in his letter, now, this was after the point where he had been converted from persecutor of the church mm-hmm. to becoming one of the, of Christianity's strongest spokesmen. Mm-hmm. He said that Jesus' resurrection on the third day was a fulfillment of the previous scriptures, and he would have been well aware of those. Yes. So it yeah. was, like I say, another documented place where the fulfillment of the scripture had taken place Mm-hmm. You know The prophecy of that third day resurrection was well known from Jesus's own words, and we see it in uh, the scriptures. And Paul says, you know, this is fulfillment of the scripture, just like he said.
0: I like that. That happens a lot. I noticed in the New Testament quite a few times when it would say, as according to the scriptures or in fulfillment of the scriptures. So that's very important stuff. Good to know.
1: Yeah, it tells us that not only were the previous scriptures important, but when they are fulfilled, we need to take note of that yeah. because it's important that those those prophecies are fulfilled. And we did a whole segment on how just eight of them are mathematically impossible. And right. yet there were the eight plus all of the other ones. So mm-hmm. then the question becomes, did Jesus descend into hell after he died and i'm gonna let you take that one that's a that's a mouthful so
0: yeah thanks a lot for just pitching me the easy one there
1: yeah here you go Here's here's a nice softball no problem
0: yeah there is a tradition it can be tied to both the king james version of the bible because there are certain things in that much earlier translation going way back that they'll use a different word than we probably would use today and sometimes Hebrew and Greek don't really translate as accurately or as easily, I should say, into English as we might think. So there are some traditions based not only on the King James Version, but on the Apostles' Creed in the Catholic Church that says Jesus was crucified, died, was buried, and then he descended into hell. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. But most Protestant churches They'll say he was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead, which means descended into hell is omitted. Why would that be? Well, let's look at that for a moment. According to many who believe the traditional version, which included the line about descending into hell, Jesus was required to go into hell. That was a part of his overall mission, to complete the process by suffering like humans would suffer. And I I automatically immediately have a, ah, that's really, I'm skeptical about that. Just, it doesn't sound like that should be a part of the reason for him going to hell. If he had to do that at all, it goes against other scripture. The reason I have this hair going up on the back of my neck experience when I hear that is because I know of these other scriptures that say, no, 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 that's a misinterpreted passage about the word that's used, which is misinterpreted into the word hell. There's a passage about Hades. So we're going to look at that in a minute, but let me see uh, if I can help clarify some of the purposes that Jesus came on the cross. It was finished. The atonement, which is the purpose of the cross was complete. There was no further work necessary to fulfill everything that Jesus had come to fulfill. Otherwise, if there was further work to be done, he would not have been able to say it is finished. And that would make Jesus a liar. And anything that would make Jesus a liar is false. So I have to put a huge, big black line right through that stuff. He had to go to hell to complete the process. No, that's just a no for me. That's a hard pass.
1: Yeah, because if it's finished, it's finished. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a power in that word to telestai, which is like it's not just finished. Like I have answered all the questions on the on my homework. Mm-hmm. No, this is finished forever. You got it.
0: No kidding. There's another tradition that Jesus went to the underworld or Sheol. There's another word in Hebrew or Hades in Greek, both the same place, but two different words, Sheol Hebrew, Hades in Greek, which just simply means the place of the dead. And that's kind of an important distinction between hell and Hades or Sheol. This is the place, this Sheol or Hades is the place where departed souls or spirits go for a time. Other scriptures in the New Testament indicated that Sheol or Hades is a temporary place where souls are kept as they await the final resurrection. That may be why some people think that Paul is referring to that place when they're saying those who are, quote, asleep, which is sort of a euphemism for they died, but their soul will be resurrected somewhere else. Now, I have to quickly point out, too, that we have to be careful about buying quickly into soul sleep based on just one passage from Paul. There's not a lot of biblical support for that. The soul sleep idea doesn't take into consideration the fact that God is timeless. And so when Jesus can say something like today, you'll be with me in paradise, that means today. So we have to be cautious not to think that there's something that might relate to purgatory, for example, because the Bible is just not teaching that. That's why I threw that in there. So the Greek word Gehenna, Is used in the New Testament for hell. That's different than Sheol or Hades. Gehenna is derived from the Hebrew word Hinnom, or the Valley of Gehenna, which was a terrible, smoldering valley. We've described that in a previous episode. That was a valley where some ancient rulers had actually sacrificed their children by fire. Eh. This is the valley used to suggest the unquenchable fire, filled with torment and unstoppable death, and misery which is associated with hell and they were trying to find the most horrible place to recognize this and to give you an idea how bad it's going to be because if we're apart from god we're going to be miserable and it's going to be worse than anything we can imagine so whether it's physical or metaphoric doesn't matter it's going to be awful the place people choose to inhabit when they reject god is hell whatever hell's going to look like And when they reject God and his authority in their lives, they have to go somewhere because God can't let people like that into heaven because heaven is that place promised for those who have trusted him. But here's the thing they've condemned themselves by their rejection of God. God didn't condemn them. That's an important distinction. So the souls of the righteous at death will go directly into the presence of God. The part of Sheol called heaven or paradise. Jesus used the word paradise when he was saying to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. So hopefully that gives us a little bit of a picture that sometimes using the wrong word, especially with an older translation, misses the point. And this is one of those cases. So we need to make sure that we're keeping a distinction between Sheol and hell. Then we see a New Testament passage, Ephesians 4, 7 through 9. This is Paul. And he says, when he, meaning Jesus, ascended on high... He took many captives and gave gifts to his people. And then it says in this little parenthetical statement, even in his own writing, what does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. And there's a footnote in the NIV translation, which is helpful. Earthly regions may also be translated as the depths of the earth, which would mean physically as in the grave or a tomb. So If you're saying that he descended, we don't necessarily have to say that he descended into Sheol or Hades, but that he was just placed, his body was placed in a tomb. Now, some interpret took many captives to mean that Jesus led captives from hell. That becomes problematic, and some people have tried to come to terms with that. Leading captives from hell is not really consistent with other scriptures. This is where one of those things can get off track quickly and people can start saying, oh, well, he's going to save everybody, which means it's going to be universalism. So people will go to hell, but they get saved anyway. Bible doesn't teach that.
1: So many of those things are counter to other parts of the scripture. And we've seen before that if that's the case, the one that should be questioned is the passage that doesn't fit with everything else. It's kind of like Sesame Street. One of these things is not like the other. Right. And so that's the one we have to take a look at in in more detail.
0: Exactly. And it's amazing how quickly we want to grab an obscure passage, which seems unique in many ways, and make that the source of our theology. Instead of saying, what's the totality of Scripture, and how does this fit into the bigger picture that we've clearly seen in other passages? That That was an affirmation, wasn't it?
1: I believe it was.
0: That's cool. If you I say have something. I think
1: that if all of this took place in Hawaii, mm-hmm. that the description that they would use for hell mm-hmm. would probably be the lava flowing out of a an active volcano.
0: Ooh, yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah but they couldn't relate to that in, in Israel at that time. So
0: That's true. They took the most awful thing they could think of. But you're right.
1: So you Um, just mentioned that some of the words could be translated in a variety of ways, as in, you know, the word lower that could mean under the earth or in the tomb. Right. And there are some scholars who say that what it really means is the earth itself, because it's lower than the heavens. Right. So this could be relating to the incarnation. And there's a really powerful description of that incarnation in Philippians 2. Oh, yeah. In talking about Christ, it says who, being in the very nature, in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, which to me is a mind-boggling statement itself. No kidding. And it goes on. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. We see it coming; it's been prophesied, mm-hmm. a number of ways. But then, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name. Mm-hmm. So, did it mean that he came down and the incarnation was the point where that he was lower? Mm-hmm. It's, it's possible. And there's a passage in First Peter, and it says, "You preach gospel to those in hell," mm-hmm. and what's the word? for hell here? Well, people now in prison relates to the time of Noah, and those are the ones who rejected the opportunity to trust God and be saved from the Great Flood. So, we see there's a, an Old Testament parallel, as we often see, relating to the New Testament. <laughs> but let's look at some passages that give us some hints as to where Jesus was. So then we'll take a look at another passage, and this one we look at in 1 Peter 3. And it tells us that Jesus went to Hades in order to preach to the spirits in prison. And who were those spirits in prison? Well, according to verse 20, they were the people who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Mm -hmm. So we just mentioned that these were the people who had clear testimony about this coming judgment. He says the flood is coming, you know, better get right. You got to get on the boat, but they refused to trust God for if they had, they would have been saved from the flood, but they chose not to trust God. But this doesn't answer the, the question fully since there's some disagreement over the passage. And this is where we can get into an endless loop of disagreements. And we've talked about that before. What comes from looking at this passage and the questions that develop from it one of which is: Were the sons of God who married the daughters of men fallen angels or human beings? Oh boy! Pretty big question. Answer: I mean, it opens up a whole nother box of things that that are not mm-hmm. necessarily uh, related to this particular question. Mm-hmm. But you can see how we get into that loop of disagreements and sure. where it falls downhill. In a big hurry, because if the answer is fallen angels, then the spirits in prison, you know, those fallen angels that that God judged for their sin in Genesis 6, or were they the spirits of people who had been destroyed by the flood? Well, none of that really makes sense. Yeah. And it's the interesting, frustrating part of where was Jesus' discussion is that every disagreement leads to further disagreements, Mm -hmm. and then you get off track for trying to answer the question, answering the other questions, and you never come up with a really good answer for it. So yeah,
0: so you use one obscure passage to point to another obscure passage. And it's easy to point to only the obscure passages to build your dissenting opinion about scripture. And that's not where we should go to find out what our real opinion of scripture is.
1: Right, and if you try to build your theology on those passages versus the rest of them that are all consistent, then your theology becomes skewed and inaccurate. Mm -hmm. And there's a third passage. This one's Mm -hmm. in Ephesians 4, and it refers to Jesus leading a host of captives. Mm -hmm. What in the world does that refer to? Well, most Bible scholars think it refers to Jesus taking all of the righteous dead who were held captive, in the paradise compartment of Sheol, Haiti, and taking them to heaven. Mm-hmm. In this view, prior to the death of Christ, the righteous dead were saved, but because their sins had not yet been atoned for, they were not allowed into heaven, at least not yet. Hmm. But once Jesus' sacrifice had been applied to them, then they were allowed entrance into heaven, and Jesus took them there. This is sort of a lot to read into leading a host of captives. But that's how many Bible scholars will interpret that text. And
0: this is where I start to think, oh, I get a little problematic with that whole idea because of God's uh, timelessness. Because we may think, oh, there's this soul sleep, or maybe some people would call something a purgatory where people needed to go and wait to see if Jesus is going to let them in or not. And this is one of those passages, too, that I think Uh, Yeah, we're reading a lot into it to try to make it say what we want it to say instead of just saying, I don't think this is the place that we need to use to try to justify any of our major thinking (laughs) related to answering the major question, which is, where was Jesus during those three days? Right. So let me see if I can dive us in just a little bit more deeply, but it's, uh, it's important for us to note that sometimes these details lead us into places that we just don't have definitive answers. So where was he? Where was Jesus for three days between his death and resurrection? Okay. What we do know he was in Hades or Sheol, apparently the place of the dead. And it says preaching to the spirits in prison, according to Peter's words, whoever those people were. And then he released all of the righteous dead of Sheol or Hades and took them with him to heaven. But again, if we're honest, we have to admit that there's controversy on every single point if we're trying to cobble those passages together and make it say something like soul sleep or purgatory, I think we're missing something there. I tend to appreciate the fact that when we understand Paul's thinking that Jesus was coming to earth, and that's what descending means to the regions of the earth, when he came to preach to us, he was preaching to people who were dead in their sin and making them alive again. So that passage to me in Philippians makes more sense than all the other passages that we point to when we're trying to answer this question. But ultimately, it seems like we're going to be intellectually honest. The Bible just doesn't go into a lot of detail on the where was Jesus question. Well, why not? I think because in comparison to his death and resurrection, and everything that his death and resurrection accomplished for us, what happened in the three days in between is not nearly as important. And maybe that should be our most important takeaway from trying and not being able to successfully and fully answer this question. It seems like we ought to spend less time debating side issues from obscure passages and things that we can't clearly know yet, and more time celebrating the big issues from the big picture, the gospel, especially the atoning work of Jesus accomplished through his death and resurrection. Because he defeated death, he defeated Satan, He defeated sin, and he's going to make a way for all of us so that his resurrection becomes the first fruits, knowing that we're going to have one, too, if we're a believer in him. So the issue will probably have question marks associated with it. It will, in my mind, until I get to see him face to face. There's always going to be question marks. And it's one of those situations that when I see him and he reveals everything, all truth, you had said maybe we'll get to watch a YouTube video that explains all these things that would be cool <laughs> or maybe he'll just suddenly give us this knowledge and it'll all become clear in a in a minute and we'll go why was i sweating that it wasn't that big a deal i don't know but what we do know is that jesus died for our sins he rose from the grave he demonstrated clearly that his death was sufficient to cover all our sin and because of his perfect and complete sacrifice demonstrated by his physical resurrection we can and we'll be saved if we trust in him. That's the most that's, important takeaway.
1: That's the big takeaway. Yeah. But there were other things happening during those three days. Mm-hmm. And I think they're important to at least take a, a cursory look at as we go through here, mm-hmm. because they relate more to us. Because as disciples of Christ, we may want to look at what the um, contemporary disciples were during doing during that time as well. And their reaction to his death. Mm -hmm. I have to think that they were absolutely shocked. Oh, yeah. That their dream of Christ as king, the one coming to overthrow the Romans, didn't play Mm -hmm. out as they expected. And they had to be terribly, terribly disillusioned. I bet. No kidding. I mean, they were sure that that he was going to overthrow Rome and everything was going to be P.J. King. They didn't see that it's the second coming that we're going to see him as king. Mm-hmm. He was coming as savior at that point. But they were probably holding on to that Christ as king illusion until he actually died. Mm-hmm. Because while he was on the cross, they could be imagining this demonstration of power. Mm-hmm. You know, if Jesus had been bloodied and beaten and crucified, and he's on the cross, and instead of you know, forgiving those around him, and finishing the work, he broke the nails and he left off the cross and he started throwing those Roman soldiers across the, the ground like rag dolls. Can you imagine how this now powerful Jesus triumphantly confronting Pilate and Herod, those who had sent him to the cross, they'd be cowering before him? I mean, what a demonstration that would be.
0: Oh, that would have been that's spectacular. <laughs> yeah.
1: But that's not how it went down. The disciples were devastated that he was dead. And I mean really dead. When the soldier pierced his side and the blood ran out and stained the ground, that's when they knew that he was dead because nobody can survive that. So all their hopes and dreams died. They were expecting something very, very different. When they had forgotten or perhaps they had just misunderstood everything that Jesus has said about what must come to pass but with jesus everything had to take place just as he said so that his ultimate mission could be completed
0: Mm
1: -hmm. the the worst thing that happened to jesus became the best thing for lost sinners Mm -hmm. and the worst thing became the primary message of the messiah as you just mentioned his death his burial his resurrection is the core gospel and Mm -hmm. that's the good news
0: no kidding death burial resurrection that's the gospel And that's what he came to accomplish. That's why he could say it is finished when he was finally done with that work. So let's look at some practical reasons why it was important for Jesus to die. And then for there to be a time period between the time he was buried and the time he rose again, his death needed to be verifiable. It needed to be definitively defined by people who could clearly say, yes, he is dead, dead, not just swooned. That was crucial. His resurrection needed to be miraculous, not just somewhat unique, but truly miraculous as were many of the things that Jesus performed while he was on the earth. They had to be class a miracles, man. I mean, things that nobody else could explain apart from God's power. Women went to the tomb for final burial preparation, which means that they were going expecting to put spices on a dead body. So in their minds, he was dead, he was gone forever. That was important. All this was important. His resurrection is therefore a message of reassurance. All that was necessary so that his resurrection would really stand out. And nobody could say, yeah, he fainted for a while. No, it needed to stand out as a true miracle and as hope for the rest of us. The risen Christ's appearances then to his disciples and so many others provided eyewitness evidence a lot of them, that Jesus is truly alive for every individual person who saw him. And then it becomes eyewitness evidence passed down to us. So these eyewitness sightings of a risen Jesus are huge. And they appear in the New Testament to validate that this really happened. This event really happened in history. And because it happened, there's hope for our eternal future. That's some of the big takeaway we get from the distance between Jesus' burial and his resurrection. And it means that we've got somebody sitting at the right hand of God right now, <laughs> pleading our case. Cause once he finished his work on earth, he ascended to be with the other two persons of the triune Godhead. And he's sitting at the right hand of the father. So says the scripture advocating for us, pleading our case before the father and saying essentially that person, although he's a sinner, he's now a saved sinner not because of what they've done, but because they trusted me and because of what I've done. Therefore, he's okay. I'll let him in. And that same spirit, the spirit of Christ, calls lost sinners to him today, just as he has through the centuries. And he's still reaching out to people who will listen to him and respond to his call to accept his invitation to join him for eternity.
1: And that's, as you said, that it, that's all huge because it gives us the reassurance that he has ascended to the Father mm-hmm. and he is pleading the case of sinners. So we ask, why is this question important to us today? The resurrection, of course, is the turning point in history. We've talked about that a number of times. I mean, the entire world calendar is based on these events. You know, we look at BC mm-hmm. versus AD, mm-hmm. the term Anno Domini, AD, and before Christ, BC are used to label or number the years in both the Julian and the Gregorian calendar. Mm -hmm. The term Anno Domini is medieval Latin, and it means the year of the Lord. But it's often presented as our Lord instead of the Lord, Ah. taken from the full original passage, if I can not butcher the Latin too badly, Anno Domini Nostri Jesu Christi which translates to, in the year of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm. So that's a pretty big distinction. Yeah. Well, you got to think that the modern scholars are not going to put up with that. <laughs> so they tried to sweep A.D. and B.C. aside, and they're opting for something that rewrites the whole resurrection out of history, as mm-hmm. they are wont to do. Mm-hmm. So they use B.C.E and CE, which of course means before the common era or the common era instead of AD and BC. Why would they do that? Because they would not want to acknowledge that the resurrection split history into two distinctive parts. There was nothing common about Christ's death. There's nothing common about his resurrection. There is no single event in human history that impacts a person's eternal soul as radically as Jesus' atonement on the cross and God's acknowledgement that it was indeed full payment for the sin of every person throughout time. Yeah. The most important event ever in the history of history. You're
0: here, here. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> and I'm, I'm a little bit defiant in that it's kind of a passive aggressive defiance because I just refuse to use BCE and CE when I write stuff. <laughs> I still write AD and BC because I, Think of that event in history that split history in half, and it points to this most important event in history. So I still write A.D. and B.C. Here's where we start to get back again to the big picture and why it's important that we not get sidetracked into obscure passages that we can't be completely sure about. Because we said, honestly, at the beginning of uh, all these episodes, there are going to be some passages that we're going to look at. We're going to scratch our heads. We're going to say, we have our best guess what we think this probably means based on God's character and the totality of scripture, but we just don't know for sure. And this is kind of one of those for me. I just can't completely nail down some of these passages related to where was Jesus' soul in those three days when he was in the tomb. But here's the thing. Jesus' resurrection gives us hope for today and every day. It verifies the entirety of God's message of love and salvation, Christians will die. They will go to paradise or heaven. So all the pain that we experience on earth is temporary. Man, we need that. We need a hope that lets us know that when we're in the worst days of our life, we've got the best days yet to come. We still have something far better to look forward to, and we can count on that because we can count on Christ. The example, that thief on the cross, most miserable day of that guy's life. And yet Jesus turns to him because the thief recognized that Jesus was doing something and he didn't deserve it, even though he did deserve it, the thief deserved it. And Jesus saw that repentance, that attitude, the contrition on the part of that thief. And he said, today you will be with me in paradise. We also see in revelation 2:7, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. There's that word again. Paradise, the same word that Jesus used when he was describing going to heaven to that thief on the cross immediately after he died. And this is where history comes full circle, because when we see in Revelation that there's going to be this tree of life, that's what God planned from the beginning. He's going to restore earth to its original perfect state so that those who trust him are filled with life, life everlasting, just as they were in the garden after creation, because it was created perfectly. And there was a tree of life and a perfect relationship with that loving God. So when we finally see the final chapter written by God himself, it's going to be a new heaven and a new earth where he's going to reign forever. It was sin that broke that, but because Jesus took care of the sin problem, when he recreates the new heaven and the new earth, everybody who's there in his presence They're gonna enjoy the perfect relationship with him forever. The new heaven and the new earth is gonna be a completion of his redemptive plan. So how does this hope translate into our lives today? I got an illustration that I saw just earlier this week because somebody pointed out a YouTube uh, video, the link to which I'm gonna put in our description to this podcast. And you may have already seen this person. She goes by the stage name Nightbird with an E at the end. What a story. She brought Simon Cowell to tears, but she also gives a very powerful witness without being preachy. There's also a story that she wrote. It's a bit of her own writing. That's kind of her testimony, her story about finding God's mercy in the most unusual place. And so I'm going to put that in there, but she shows us that we can have so much hope, even when life throws us curveballs and when life brings us literally to the bathroom floor, with bad things that'll happen to us. What a great testimony. So I'm gonna put that in there and you'll see somebody who has managed to find God's mercy and grace and hope, even though life has not been real kind to her. Rick, I think we ought to sum up these things and offer a prayer that would help sort of coalesce all the things we've talked about today, trying to point people to the real purpose of the death, burial and resurrection, which is not so that we can definitively win arguments about where Christ's soul was, whether it was Sheol or hell, whether he preached to captives and set them free then, or if he was preaching to captives by preaching when he was alive, the purpose is not so that we can win arguments. What is the real purpose? And then you can lean in a prayer.
1: It's one of those questions that we didn't really answer, but we certainly asked. And it's a question that is worth asking as we got into the depth of it. We really see that there's a a time period of, you know, multiple hours where we don't really know where he went. We don't really know what happened in there. We have to believe that he went to paradise. He said to the thief, we'll be there together. But we don't want to get into the disagreements that leads to more disagreements and take the focus off of what the big picture is. And it always comes down to his atoning death on the cross Mm -hmm. his death and he was dead he had no blood left in him it pierced the side it ran on the ground he was dead the disciples knew he was dead they were going to prepare for his burial state with the spices and found an empty tomb and that's the key factor the resurrection which said from god's perspective I acknowledge that your atonement is sufficient for all sinners of all time. Mm -hmm. So, what does a a sinner need to do? Pretty simple. Just accept that Christ's atoning blood is enough to cover your sin. And with whatever level of belief you have, confess the sin, let Christ take it away, let him clothe you in his robe of righteousness. And a simple prayer can do that. And I'll model one. And if you want to pray that along with me, your world is going to change forever. Your eternity is going to be very, very different. And a prayer as simple as, dear Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I've fallen short. I've missed the mark. And with what belief I have, I believe that you died on that cross for me. If I was the only one, you still would have gone. I believe it with what level of belief I have, and I confess my sin to you, and I thank you that even now you are covering that sin with your blood and that you are accepting me into your family, and I now want to serve you for the rest of my life, and I pray it in the the loving name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I am so glad that the gospel is that simple and that going from unsaved to saved, is a simple matter of faith. Even if the faith is the size of a mustard seed, it can yeah. create huge, huge
0: impact. Oh man, that's so true. Uh, my dear mom, who's in heaven now, would say things to some of her neighbors who were a little skeptical, and they weren't quite ready to just say that kind of prayer. And she wasn't pushy. She didn't run up to people and not let them back into their house because she had to talk to them about. You know, you've you've run into people who are that pushy. She wasn't. She was loving. She was gracious. She served other people winsomely, but for those who are still a little bit skeptical, she would say, I just want you to remember the truth of the gospel and keep it tucked away in your mind so that when you get to a point, when you start to become aware, there may not be any other way out. I think I need what this little old lady was talking about. I want you to remember that because you can cry out to God and in a minute, in an instant he'll be there and he'll answer you have a great day (laughs) (laughs) she was so good about doing that because she wasn't trying to push them to do something they weren't ready to do but she knew that there would come a time when people are going to get really aware of their mortality and they may need one of those little prayers tucked away in their mind to think i remember when that little old lady told me this sample prayer i need to say that now god help me i need a i need a savior and if it's literally in your last dying breath he'll be there. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I mean, he means that. So I like to constantly plant that seed of truth in people's minds, even if you're not quite ready yet to take that leap of faith. But it's there, and it's there for everybody, and it's there freely offered to you by God. And when the time is right, man, I pray you'll take that step.
1: It amazes me that people will turn to their own works, which the Bible says are filthy rags, Hmm. and it's so simple i mean yeah. the people try to make it difficult they try to mm-hmm. create their own atonement they try to do everything other than simply believe in faith that mm-hmm. christ did what he did and god accepted it and we know that because the resurrection happened
0: yeah that's for sure and uh it's so good to me to hear some of the feedback I've gotten already, including one, and she sent me a text after listening to one of our episodes. And she said, this is really helping me because I was always afraid that if I chose the wrong religion, I would mess up. And there's so many to choose from. And I'm starting to understand now that it doesn't necessarily, being religious has more to do with the relationship, as you keep saying and that religion doesn't really save us. It's Jesus who saves us. She got it. I mean, she's starting to really get this. She said, I'm finding out that it's okay that I don't know everything, and we have clearly suggested to you that we don't know everything either. We don't know the answers to some of the questions we brought up today in this discussion, but that doesn't matter because we're not going to know everything because if we knew everything, we would be God, and we're not God. So the fact that we don't have to know everything is really comforting because we can just trust Jesus Christ and what He did for us. That's what makes a person saved and okay for eternity. As we start to get to know Him better, that's the simplicity
1: of the gospel. And He's just there for everybody. And He provides it all. He's the hope. Yeah. Yep. And He's the reassurance. It's simple. It's easy. And some people don't want to accept it as simple and easy, but it is. I mean, why would God make it difficult? He loves us. He wants that relationship. He said, I'm going to put it on my son. All you have to do is accept it. Yeah. Yep.
0: Good, good word to end on. It's been another great and I appreciate it. It's always good to chat with you about matters that matter. And thank you, our fellow theologians, for listening in once again, and we do hope, as always, that you'll tune in again next week for another episode of Monday Monday Afternoon Afternoon. Theologians. Theologians.
1: Theologians. 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 Theologians.